Welcome to With Purpose, the podcast for people working, investing and giving with real purpose. My name's David Knowles and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, this is the first podcast in this new series and I'm very pleased to say my guest is Malcolm Turnbull, the 29th Prime Minister of Australia. Malcolm needs little introduction, but he's a noted uh, investment banker and also has been um, very active along with his wife, Lucy, in philanthropic endeavours for many years through the Turnbull Foundation. It's worth noting that this chat with Malcolm took place using the Zoom system and it took place on the 7th of May 2020 uh, and you can work out where we were in relation to the global pandemic and economic crisis uh, with reference to that date. Uh, We had an interesting chat, Malcolm spoke about his thoughts on philanthropy, uh, his uh, advice for um, charities looking for funding and looking for support from government amongst other things. Uh, We touched on a number of other subjects and we also got a guest appearance from Malcolm's wife Lucy. I, I hope you enjoy the episode as I enjoyed talking to Malcolm. Morning Malcolm, how are you? Very well, David. Good. Just been for a lovely walk. Beautiful. How are you coping in isolation? Uh, pretty well. You know, I think, uh, I, I mean, there's a lot of people that are, most people are doing it a lot tougher than we are, I think. You know, we're, we're, we're fortunate to be where we are, um, living where we are, and we're fortunate to be living in Australia too, I think. Uh, the, uh, it's obviously a very tough time for the people in the front line, particularly the people working in hospitals and healthcare, and also those people who are, you know, working in the front line, whether it's in retail uh, uh, or, you know, other sort of services that are, you know, having to deal with a lot of people in a face-to-face way. But, but uh, yeah, so it's time um, we're managing. And, I mean, thanks to things like Zoom and all the other applications, we're spatially distanced but not socially distanced. Yeah. Well, once again, we seem to be the lucky country, don't we? Yeah, I think yes. I think there's, I think there's a, a big combination of luck and good management. I think. Now, um, in talk, talking of isolation, I've heard on another podcast that you've been out on your kayak. Yeah, yeah, sure. I go out all the time. Is there any truth in the rumor that you've been waving copies of your new book at passing ferries? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't done that. Uh, but. Uh, I haven't done that. I try to avoid close encounters with ferries. It's an unequal match. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a one-way system, that, isn't it? I see the book behind you there. Has, has, have you been enjoying the whole process since the launch? Uh, well, it's been, look, it's been, the book, it's been a very busy uh, time. I've done, you know, we, so, okay, so, so we set an April 20 publication date last year, end of last year, uh, you know, long before this virus manifested itself. And yet the book is selling very well. So, you know, it's selling well in um, hard copy. It's been the number one bestseller two weeks running for the two weeks it's been out. And it's, it's gone very well as an audible book, you know, uh, and, as, and electronically. So, so it's, a, it's kind of amazing. You know, the publisher's a bit stunned by it all, actually, as am I, because it was a, it was a very tough time to, to launch anything. Mm, and, and yeah absolutely how are you coping more with being at home though it's a massive change for someone like you are you kind of stalking around well like look I mean, in you know, a cage at the zoo or are you, are you I mean no I mean I've got it look I'm very lucky uh, Lucy and I live in a beautiful part of Sydney we live here in 
you know, on Sydney Harbour. We've got a big house. We've got plenty of room. Uh, it's, you know, we're not like, it's not as though we've, you know, young couple with, you know, three kids and a, you know, two, three bedroom flat or something or two bedroom flat or, yeah. or even, you know, tighter. So there's, there's plenty of people, particularly outside of Australia that are in very, very tough situations. And I mean, as to, you know, the, the whole quarantine social distancing thing in, in countries like India and, you know, or even closer to us, Indonesia, it's a uh, very, very cool to see how it can be done at all. So, mm, you know, yeah. this is, you know, this, sadly, this is, this pandemic has got a lot further to go, but you know, the news, the news today is, is, um, you know, getting better here. I mean, we had, I gather we've had in today, 10,000 tests uh, in New South Wales and only three new cases. So yeah. that suggests that the, we're, you know, where the community transmission is pretty limited, yeah. um, which is important. Now, to the conversation uh, that we're here to have today, times like this, it probably there's a heightened sense of um, uh, purpose in your life and what you do and reflection on that. So we're really here to talk about the importance of purpose in your work, your, uh, your, um, your life and your giving. So let, let me kick off with a, a simple question. How important, how important is purpose in your life and work? Well, I mean, yeah, purpose is 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 all important. You know, I I think uh, you've got to have a purpose in whatever you do. Um, the uh, you know, I've always said that uh, you know, power without purpose is pointless. So um, that was always, you know, a lot of people in politics, you know, frankly, pursue high office and and uh, power as a goal, as an end in itself, almost as a, as a game. Um, but, uh, where, um, you know, that was never, that was never my approach. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, but yeah, purpose is critically important. Um, whatever you do. Where, where do you think it comes from that belief? Is that something you, you would attribute to something in your childhood or is that? Just oh, I'd, yeah. Well, I, I just, no, I've always, I've always thought you're, you know, you've got to you've got to set goals, and uh, uh, and I've always tried to do my best. I've been I've always believed that if you're endowed with, uh, you know, well, we're all endowed with talents and abilities, um, and they all differ. So you've got a your job should be your role should be to, you know, maximise the benefit that you can derive for yourself your family and your community from those skills i mean if if you've got skills you and and attributes then you should seek to use them and i'm you know you, you touched on philanthropy earlier the you know lucy and i've have always been uh philanthropic um and encouraged others to be so uh we're very firmly of the view and there's a bit of a speech I gave about this in the book that's referred to in the book in this subject but you know we've always been of the view that good fortune uh, particularly financial good fortune is a in large part luck now it might be you know dumb luck it might be that you inherited it from your parents right or you won the lottery um, but more likely 
it's, you know, you've worked hard, you've made some canny decisions, you've made some good calls. Um, so you've helped make your own luck. But the reality is, as I used to say to my fellow partners at Goldman Sachs in New York, they said there are taxi drivers in this city that work harder than all of us and they're not making any money. So, so you know, you've got to, uh, I think it's very important to, to remember that and to always be, uh, be prepared to give back. Now, that might be financially. Uh, it might be through public service, uh, you know, as I did going into politics. Um, uh, but there are, you know, there are many, many other ways to do that. But, you know, you, you, the, the biggest mistake people with money can make is to imagine that they deserve it, they earned it, mm. um, and 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 you know I'm not saying they I'm not saying that they did I'm not saying they didn't deserve it and they didn't earn it. What I'm saying is, you've got to recognise there is a hell of a lot of luck and chance in any of our good fortune. Even down to you know, let's say, you, you know, your parents didn't leave you a, a dollar. Um, the fact that you've got a brain, the fact that you you know you you're, you're you know, you could have been born with disabilities. You know, you, you could have been born with real disadvantages. So, so you know, the fact is that, you know, most of us um, should be always every day counting our blessings. Yeah. Uh, th that concept of giving back is an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's a school of thought that says if you, if you think about giving back, it kind of implies that you've taken something in the first place. But it's, it's not so much that, I think, is it? How, how do you think about that? Well, I think it's, I, 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 yeah, I, uh, let, me, let me give you a theory. I'll give you my theory on philanthropy. Um, and I, 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 I give no warranties about this, but it's, uh, it's, I've thought about it a lot. So one of the questions that people often ask is why are Americans generally more philanthropic than Australians or Brits for that matter? And this is, I think, the, the answer is to be found in Alexis de Tocqueville's um, book, Democracy in America, which he wrote in, I think, the 1840s. He's a Frenchman who, a count, in fact, who went to America and you know, wrote a book about American society. And he observed how, what a grassroots society it was. He was really writing about New England and the, you know, the way in which uh, there wasn't an established church, uh, government was limited, and so when people wanted to do something, you know, for their community, they, everyone had to pitch in and pass the hat around and, you know, or physically get in and work together to build something. And that uh, is very much, that's very much part of the American culture. So um, whereas in Australia, and the same is true, I think, in the United Kingdom, but I'll just talk about Australia because I'm more familiar with it. In Australia, if you look at the, the big institutions that have provided social health, welfare, educational, you know, services of one kind or another, they have all been top-down hierarchical institutions. And you would say they would be uh, the, the state, you know, the government, um, the, uh, the Catholic church and the Anglican church. And, you know, and that's, and so, we, you know, we haven't had that same grassroots uh, approach. Now, if you want to sort of get a local example of that, another question people often say is why is the Jewish community 
so much more philanthropic than the rest of the community. And I think the reason for that is, I mean, the Jews would say, you know, there's a lot of ethical, you know, precepts in Judaism, which they would point to, and they'd be fair to do so, but those precepts, frankly, are shared in every culture. But I think the real reason is that there isn't a hierarchical organisation. There isn't a sort of Jewish archbishop uh, and a top-down structure uh, that, you know, runs the place like, you know, it does with the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church or the government for that matter. And so if you want to, you know, build a new shul or synagogue or, or you know, some new Jewish institution, you literally have to, you know, pass the hat around and they do. And so I think that's that um, over-dependence on uh, government and these hierarchical institutions has been one of the things that has constrained philanthropy in Australia. Mm. Um, I'll give you one more example, and then then I'll stop. I'll throw over to you. But a great one of the great, you know, uh, you know, scholarships in the world is the Rhodes Scholarship. Probably the most, probably one of the most famous scholarships. You know it well. And the yeah, and I'm a, I was a Rhodes Scholar. And the Rhodes Trust was founded by Cecil Rhodes. The you know. Uh, South African sort of adventurer, you know, mining magnate, you know, invader of Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, establisher of Rhodesia, you know, like he was a, he was a, a piratical genius, I suppose you could call him in many ways. Anyway, Rhodes established this um, uh, uh, trust and it, and, you know, with that money, it went on and, that was the endowment and they funded the scholarships and so forth. And then in the GFC, they lost about a third of the endowment. Uh, literally, they one third, which is a lot. Uh, and until that time, they had never, ever asked one of the former scholars for a donation. If I had sent them a cheque for a thousand quid, I reckon they would have sent it back and said, so, you know, some, you've made some mistake. Mm. And, so they hired a, an Australian guy called Don Markwell to be the warden, um, who later went on to work with George Brandis and me in government. But Don, um, Don said, well, crops, we've got, to, you know, we've got to start raising some money. And so they actually started a fundraising campaign, which has been hugely successful. And, you know, they've had, you know, Rhodes Scholars, some of them have, you know, been become billionaires like John McCall McBain in Canada, who's been extremely generous and others have done, you know, well, like me and, you know, Mike Fitzpatrick and, um, and, uh, and uh, Wiley, you know, um, here in Australia. Um, but the, but, you know, many of our academics and, you know, uh, you know, maybe can kick in a few hundred quid or dollars, mm -hmm. but the, but the bottom line is that for the first time, they actually ask people for money. Now, can you imagine any American institution similarly situated not doing that? I mean, you go to an American college to go to Harvard. Yeah. From the day you get there, they're softening you up to start, yeah. start donating. And that's what, and, and so it's a very, it, 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 you know, America, which, I mean, I'd much rather be in Australia than America. I think our society, we've got so many things better managed and thought through than the Americans have, not least healthcare. 
but uh, they do have a much better uh, sense of, um, of you know, giving back, philanthropy, whatever you want to call it. So anyway, that's my that's what. What do you think? Do you think my theory has has water holds water? I I do. I'll come to that in one second. When you're at Goldman Sachs, did you ever meet a guy that I used to bring over to to teach? Um, charity leaders, um, the program that he ran at, at um, the business, the Harvard Business School. Do you ever meet Warren McFarlane? He tells the story of how they'd get students uh, to stand up and they'd ask them to look to their left and look to their right, empty spaces. And, and, and he would say, those are the people who are not here. That's how lucky you are to be here and you have an obligation to give back. And that would be yeah. the first day that they arrived to be taught so that, that that process began on the very first day to appreciate the opportunity you had and the obligation you had as yeah. a result. Um, on, that, on that question of your theory, I, it does, because I think it chimes well with something that I've thought over the years, which is that there's a very strong correlation between giving levels and uh, the way in which uh, the population believes they interact with government. So if you think about the United States where people know that they can't rely on the mm. government there isn't a safety net that, that it's yeah. more about the individual agency than it is about government control and hierarchy mm. and then you look uh, at say china or russia and then you look at australia somewhere in between those two points there's uh, there's definitely a relationship in in how people think about what the government should do and what the government mm. should pay for and what they should do themselves the interesting thing is what what do you reckon is going to happen as a result of this pandemic Will people think, look, there are limits to, uh, and there should be limits to what the government does, and there are limits to government finances, and, and therefore people will become more responsive, or do you think people will give less because they kind of shrink back? Well, I think if, you, if you're a, I mean, if people, a lot of people, uh, are go, you know, a lot of people are going to be, are out of work, a lot of people's businesses will be, uh, will fail, uh, a lot of people's businesses will you know, uh, go through very tough times. So um, that is inevitably going to result in less uh, philanthropy, um, you know, because obviously if you haven't got the money to give, you can't give it. So um, I think uh, governments, I mean, governments do have to step up uh, and are stepping up and inevitably the government always has the biggest checkbook. But I've always believed you know, I've always believed in the importance of philanthropy. Um, and I, I put it this way. If you're an institution, a school, a hospital, a research lab or whatever, and you get uh, a dollar from the government and a dollar from a philanthropist, each, the, each of those dollars will buy you the same amount of services. I mean, it's the same. It's completely fungible. But the difference is the money that comes from individuals comes with uh with love you know it comes as a personal connection you know there it's um it's not the output of a sort of bureaucratic decision or a political decision somebody has made a personal decision to support a particular cause and that personal that donor uh will become a supporter an advocate you know, a counsellor, an advisor, there's a personal connection that makes the philanthropic dollar much more powerful than the government dollar. Mm. Uh, and so the, you know, the, um, 
because and and you know and frankly you know i always encourage you know uh you know organizations you know again you know whether they're hospitals schools theater companies or whatever you know use your donors as advocates you know make you know make them your partners because because they, they feel they've in, they feel they've invested now they're not expecting to get a return uh like investing in a company but you know make them your partners and uh, uh that's that's very important because you know because frankly that that gives you some influence and some leverage malcolm i used to live on hughes street in potts point and that would be a street that i guess you know fairly well because that's the home of the wayside chapel yeah yeah uh, sure in fact i'm going to make a confession and, na and named after one of lucy's forebears i've got no doubt too who right. probably sir thomas hughes who was the first lord mayor of sydney well there you go mm. um I, my confession is that i think i we, we moved into a place on Hughes street as backpackers and i think someone in the house at some stage on, on the first day or couple of days arrived with a couple of pots and pans or some crockery which i think may have been left as a donation outside the chapel so i think any donations i've subsequently made have been driven by guilt associated with that but um <laughs> we both spoke recently at the side by side conference and i know that yeah. you, you um and your family have been involved with wayside for yeah. for you know many years um why were you attracted to the kind of things that they do and how they do it well i think i think wayside is you know um you know, Graham Long, uh, you know, in particular, who I knew very well, and of course, you know, his successor is doing a phenomenal job too. Um, but, you know, I th I've always felt that the Wayside was an example of um, uh, practical, unconditional love, hmm. not judgmental. Uh, it was, it, 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 the work the Wayside does is as close to what Christ urged us all to do as you can find, not lecturing people, not trying to constrain people or condemning people, you know, just basically saying, okay, you know, you're broke, you're in a mess, you know, your life is in tatters. I'm here to help you. I love you. I'm here to help you. Do you know, know, Graham Long said a great thing that stayed with me for years after since he said it, which is that we're not here to fix people. We, we walk alongside them. And I think that's, yeah. that kind of is, part of the essence of, of their whole philosophy, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, and it is, and I, I think it's, I think that's very important. I mean, because the, uh, yeah, look, I, the way the wayside is a great institution. I mean, there are many other mm. institutions that do similar work. Uh, here's a, this is very nice. Lucy has just brought me a nice <laughs> coffee. Thank you very much. I'm just talking to David Knowles Hello. Hello, about the wayside chapel. Hello, Lucy. I'm, I'm in my just about to do a workout. You're looking, you're, 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 well, I've just in my coming back from a walk outfit and you're looking much smarter than me. So <laughs> yeah, it's hardly surprising. I anyway, appearance. I, good. All right. Lots of technology there, though. I can't get a coffee, can I? But, yeah, that's um, right. That's I'll right. enjoy watching you drink. Your You'll coffee. have to have a virtual coffee. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, so we're talking about the importance of philanthropy. What about the importance, Malcolm, in your mind? Um, from a political and a personal perspective, the importance of charities and um, similar nonprofit groups um, within the overall construct of, of society and the economy. How do you look at 
those types of organizations and the place that they they have in our oh well i mean they're critically important i mean i i you know but we're in every in every area you know i think uh you know i mean mean, charities are like everything else you know some of them are better run than others uh and uh but you know the the honestly um you know, mobile, getting people engaged and interested uh, and supporting, uh, you know, one cause or another is absolutely critical. I mean, look, you know, okay, I just, and again, this is, I refer to this in my book. I, I, look, there's very little in my book about what Lucy and I've done philanthropically. I mean, I, I don't know, I probably should have written more about it, but I've always preferred to be um, a bit, you know, under the radar in that respect we've never made a big thing about it at all but there's one story i tell so my dad was sent me to sydney grammar school uh i went there when i was eight because i was a boarder actually which i didn't like but he was for much of that period battling financially you know he was not um you know he was a salesman he was you know he he bruce was a guy who did not really make a quid uh until he got into his mid 40s i would say he started to sort of mid to late 40s he really sort of started it to do well before that he was he was battling and he struggled to pay the fees okay so when i um you know i've obviously left school and got on with my life when i first made some serious money uh in the mid 80s so i was quite young but i started to sort of uh you know, make a few bob in the really late 80s. One of the things I did was I gave a lot of money in those days to my old school on the basis that they would have an additional means-tested scholarship. Mm. And I re- and, and I persuaded them to make uh, all of their, all or most of their scholarships, it was a slightly contentious issue, uh, uh, means tested because my very strong view is that scholarships should be means tested. You know, I, I mean, the if you've got a school uh, and you have a scholarship exam, and the boy or girl who tops the exam has a you know well-off parents, by all means, give them a book, uh, you know, a red gown, a hat, or <laughs> whatever, but don't pay their fees. That's crazy. Yeah. You know. And, and so, you know, I'm really strong, big believer in means testing. And so I, so, you know, that, so that was something that I really wanted to do. And, and the school uh, very was, you know, it was actually, it was their suggestion. They, cause I told them what was motivating me and they said, well, why don't we call the scholarship after your father? Mm-hmm. So there is a Bruce Turnbull scholarship at Sydney Grammar and has been for, well, for now, you know, over 30 years. Um, and it's a means-tested scholarship, and uh, you know that's a good, you know, good. That's that's an example of you know of how I think. Mm. But I, I wanted to, you know, uh, sort of show you know in a way my appreciation for what my father did for me. I'm going to come back to this idea of uh, of um, an enduring scholarship or an enduring philanthropic fund. But uh, first of all, you tell a good story about your dad when you got your Rhodes scholarship. Mm. Um, can you tell us that? Yeah. Okay. So, so my dad was a hotel broker and he was, um, 
so this is 1977, would have been, you know, uh, towards the end of 1977, probably October, November, something like that. And uh, Dad, um, Dad was out at the North St Mary's Hotel, which was a pretty tough pub, actually, um, uh, in those days. And he was, he was talking to the public and he was, you know, selling it or doing something out there with the pub. And um, in fact, yeah, yeah, and yeah, that would have been that. Well, he had some business to do there. Anyway, so I, I I get the news that I've won the Rhodes Scholarship. So I track him down. I tell him the good news. He's so excited, and then uh, you know, five or ten minutes later, he rings back, and he says, "Oh, he said I'm coming into town." He said, "He said he, he said he said I he said just they're hopeless." You know, he said I've just spoken to the publican. And you know, I told him you won a Rhodes Scholarship. And you know what he said? He said, that's great, Bruce. I've got a cousin in the Department of Main Roads. We better get them together. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good, I always thought it's a good, a good reality check. Because you could imagine Bruce, you know, like bursting with pride. <laughs> and he, no one has the faintest idea what he's talking about. <laughs> so oh, anyway, God. so he had to, had to get, into, get into town again. Yeah. Well, so yeah, just going back to the scholarship thing, you mentioned the fact that it's enduring. Um, yeah. My, in my career, I've been fortunate enough to, to be schooled as a trustee hmm. and look, look after and help people set up um, charitable foundations that yeah. have, that, and, and manage some of them that have gone on previous to my involvement for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Hmm. And what that's enabled me to do is to see the power um, of those compound returns, a sustainable rate of distribution from a fund that you establish yeah. with, a, with a, yeah. a pool of capital and see over time that you can uh, eventually with just even um, part of the course investment returns, uh, you can distribute more to the community that you care about than you even put in to the trust in the first place. And um, you obviously understand money very well. And uh, I just wonder, how do you look at that? Because not everybody, not well, everybody. We, we, established a, we established a foundation um, uh, many years ago, uh, which we converted into a PATH, you know, one of the, I think it's a private ancillary foundation, uh, the Turnbull Foundation. And it is the vehicle by which we, do most of our philanthropic giving um, and it has a you know it has a, a you know a corpus a, you know it's got a uh, assets and uh, which we you know contribute to we add we've added to from time to time but it's uh you know it's it's a it's not the biggest foundation in Australia but it's you know it's it's a it's, it's reasonably substantial and it I, I set it up uh, with loose uh, I'm just trying to think now. It would be, it would have been uh, about close to. It would have been twenty odd years ago, and we set it up um, so that we had a, you know, something that was an enduring, um, uh, well, just an enduring charitable foundation mm. that would enable us. Um, you know, instead of being in a situation where your charitable giving was dependent on, you know, how many goals you'd kicked in a particular year, which obviously can vary from time to time. And of course, particularly if you got run for parliament, you're not going to be kicking to any. Uh, 
uh, for, at least financially for yourself. Um, so, so it was good. So that's enabled us to be, you know, have a consistent, you know, program of philanthropic giving over, over decades now. Yeah. Mm. I think it uh, probably as well as the, the financial side of it working well and ultimately producing more for the community, obviously there are questions of legacy and benefits for the family. But I think the other thing a foundation, uh, an enduring foundation does is it ensures or increases the chances of your ongoing commitment to it, doesn't it? Because it is something you're going to do every year. There are distributions to be made. There are things to be. Yeah, made. that's right. Yeah. So, so we, we, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we can, we, you know, our philanthropic giving is, is, uh, has, it is yeah, substantial and, and, and consistent. Look, I think it's a good, I think it is a good structure. Uh, and our children are involved mm. now, uh, particularly Daisy, our daughter who lives in Australia. Uh, so, you know, so that's good. Mark, I'm going to ask you two questions from the perspective of you as, as a giver through the foundation, mm. presumably previously in a personal capacity. You're, what advice would you give from the funder's perspective to charities based on your dealings with them? How can you help them understand the mind of somebody who's um, experienced in business, in government, and also in giving over the years? How, what would you say to charities to... Um, to help them appeal to funders, given what you know from doing it yourself, I think basically it, it you want to um, you've got to uh, engage with people. Uh, you've got to you know just it, it's just you've got to explain what you're doing, uh, persuade them or demonstrate to them that they that they're going to get value for money, uh, not personally, but you know what I mean. That that, yeah. that if someone gives them you know, a thousand dollars, they're actually going to get a thousand dollars worth of, you know, output there yeah, yeah. and not going to, you know, take it all in admin and salaries and so forth. So that's keeping that, uh, you know, the management costs as low as possible is critically important. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, that there, there are a lot of. I think a lot of people start charities with a very big heart. So charities are a bit like small businesses. You know, a lot of small businesses are started by people with a, with great passion and great idea, but not a lot of business skills, mm. and they fail. Mm. Uh, a lot. Of, I think there's a. My impression is that there's quite a few charities that are started by people with big hearts and dreams, but really don't know what they're doing. Uh, so uh, it's very important to you know, make sure that if you've got a charity that you are running it lean, you know, you're running it lean and efficiently and you can demonstrate that, you know, you are, your contributors are getting, are seeing their money put to work. And that is a view I think you, you, you hear across Australia. There is the idea though that if you were to say start a successful for-profit business, mm. the, the investing in talent, people, management, systems, marketing, mm. uh, all of those things are really smart investments. In the charitable sense, they might get called overheads or, or admin, mm. and they often get frowned upon. But there is that argument to say that um, that expenditure is, is um, essential to you to do the best thing or the most you possibly can with that charity. Mm. How, do you, how do you think about that? Because obviously you've got a business, well, yeah, I mean, a business it, but, mind. But David, it's just you know the, 
the difficulty, I guess the difficulty is that with a business, you know, your KPIs are fairly obvious. You know, it's return on capital, profit, share price, you know. With a charity, uh, it's, it is, you know, the KPIs are often harder to discern and define. Mm. So, uh, but you just, look, but there's no golden rule here. I'm just saying that, you know, you've got to be able to, you've got to go further than saying, we are trying to find a cure to cancer, to say, we're trying to find a cure to cancer. This is what we've been spending the money on. These are the results we've been getting. This is why, you know, and now we want to do something else. This is why it's important. Um, you know, with established institutions like schools and, and uh, you know, cultural institutions, it's sort of, it's more, it, it's probably easier. I mean, you, uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, I guess the, the the difficulty is one of account. The difficulty is one of accountability. You know the, um, you know, ma but man management is key. I mean, look, this is this is everything I've said is a penetrating glimpse of the obvious, right? Uh, so, so probably you know that, but I can't really add add any more to it. But well, give us a, give us a little bit because we're we're on the home straight time wise. Um, loads of charities and nonprofits are mm. as we speak. Um, around the country on other Zoom calls, um, having team meetings, board meetings, et cetera, trying to work out how they can go to government as the major funder in mm. the space uh, to ask for money that they probably feel they desperately mm. need more desperately mm. than um, two months, three months ago. Most of them don't know how to talk to government and they don't know how to win support. Um, mm. Obviously, you've got the... Um, the personal experience at the very highest level and throughout government different levels um what can you what can you with the benefit of that experience say well i think what they've got what you've got to do is uh make sure you've obviously got to go through all the the you know the normal grant application channels but make sure that you get yourself on the radar screen of your local mp uh and you know that's that shouldn't be hard. Uh, make sure you 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 know you make some political uh, connections. Um, if you know you want to be sure you're on the radar screen of your local MP and and you know as they you know one of the best bits of advice I had as a very young man was from someone who said uh, you've got to snuggle up to the government and keep the opposition closely briefed. So the you know, you don't want to get into partisan politics, but you want to make sure that, it, that you know, um, you've got good relationships with some people in, in the parliament because they can be, you know, they, they ultimately, they, they may not be making the decisions about who's going to, uh, where grants are going to go, but they are certainly will get you on the radar. Um, don't be afraid of um, of being, you know, making sure that you know a bit of media profile doesn't hurt either. You know, this is all. This is again. This is all pretty obvious. Mm. But you've got. But also, this is one of the reasons why you've got to make sure that your charity is well run. Because if you get yourself on the radar, then someone may say, "Oh, I might have a look at you know the, you know X Y Z charity," and 
and then someone will do a bit of research and you know discover that it's not as well run as it should be so so i think that's but but certainly develop relationships with um with local mps i mean i you know obviously was the member for wentworth here for 14 years and um you know i had uh very good relations with a host of not-for-profits in this electorate and i often made representations on their behalf um, you know, to government, to ministers, you know, and that, and that is, there's, there's nothing improper about that. It is absolutely what local MPs do. You know, the minister has to make his decisions or her decisions and the, or the bureaucracy, depending on how it's, you know, how the, how the grant process works. Uh, but, um, you know, getting that make you know getting yourself on the radar screen of your local MPs is uh, is a very good is a very good I mean people don't use their local MP enough mm. you know I mean like if you've got an immigration problem a lot of people spend a fortune on immigration consultants for example uh, the best person to call is your local MP you know I mean honestly that's I mean it you know a, a good constituency MP is you know, 50% of their time is basically doing social work. And, and you know, that's, and, and, and you know, there's any wannabe politicians listening to this. Uh, I tell you, if you want to win a seat and hold a seat, that's what you want to do. You want to be, when someone tells you they've got a problem, don't tell them it's not your jurisdiction. Tell them you'll fix it. <laughs> um, two quick questions to finish. Yep. Capital markets. Uh, what, how do you, how do you think about the role that they do play and can play in building and, and benefiting um, the community and the environment? And if you feel comfortable, you can touch on that with a specific reference to, to impact investing, which is an emerging concept. Well, I think yeah, I think impact investing is very important, and and the firm I'm a senior advisor to KKR has a whole impact fund, uh, which you know I've helped them with and some a number of investments, but. I, um, yeah, well, I, I think, you know, mobilising capital for impact investing is, is very important. Um, you know, the late Robin Crawford, you know, great guy, great friend of ours. Um, Robin, you know, did a fantastic job mobilising uh, capital for, um, to acquire ABC Learning, you know, in what became Good Start, right? Yep. Not for profit. Uh, and he really led the way there. So... Uh, yeah, I think that's very, very important. Um, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I actually, th there's an account, but we maybe just sort of should wrap up on this, but there is an accountability angle to this. So if I give a million dollars to a charity, uh, there is always the risk that I will say, okay, I've given the million dollars, I've written the check, that's it, you know, and I'll move on to something else. If on the other hand, I make a million dollar loan on favorable terms, which, you know, is, you know, subordinated and has very low interest, you know, it's a kind of a soft loan. Uh, I will be pay more attention to that even even though I may have limited expectation of getting my money back, I'll pay more attention to it. Mm. And so there is a sort of a, there's a, 
uh, an angle to impact investing, even when it is not really, it, it's only barely commercial, that it does engage more accountability than a straight gift. So yeah. I'm just, I just leave that as a thought. Um, it's, uh, I mean, Robin, we, we didn't, we were really enthused by what Robin was doing with um, the childcare project. Uh, but because I was in Parliament, and we normally would have supported it, by the way, but because I was in Parliament, of the whole you know childcare sector is you know is basically governed and dependent on government policy. I just felt we couldn't participate in it, uh, so we didn't. But um, that was a very good example of, of uh, impact investing, you know, with a great outcome. The, the, the idea of um, giving your money away is interesting. Who wants to give their money away? It should always be a good investment, whether it's a charitable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. <clears throat> that's right. But it's the, it's the sort of the account, you know, the accountability, I think, is an issue with, um, with often with charities. And, of course, when you get a badly managed one, it always gets, uh, you know, a huge amount of, adverse publicity which then creates problems for the sector mm. well look we, we uh, thanks we david i'm going to ask you one just 10 second answer you've talked about our response in australia to this crisis you've talked about our current situation right at the start what what is your um view on the outlook for australia from this point well i think we're going to go through a very tough period economically uh, both locally and globally but i think we're better situated than most countries um i think we've got a number of great advantages uh, above all the fact that we are the most successful multicultural society in the world. I think that diversity is our greatest strength. Um, you know, we are part of the fastest growing region in the world, um, but we've got to recognize, you know, there's got, this, is going, this is going to be a very disruptive episode and uh, a very painful one. Okay. Look, Thanks we've been, a lot. We've been talking about a bigger picture. You, your book is a bigger picture. There it is. There it is. And the very best. At a good bookshop near you. Absolutely. <laughs> or Why are there no bad bookshops? Why do they always say it's a good bookshop? That's right. <laughs> I've never heard of a bad bookshop. I think it's available on your um, keypad. That's yeah, it is. Way, isn't it? But uh, you've been right. generous with your time. And Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. See you. Bye. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codacapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and nonprofit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.